when I was in middle school, uh, my parents began watching a really popular TV show at the time called 24. Anyone else watch the show 24? Man, great show. Yeah, yeah, this was back in the day when you actually had to watch shows live on TV. And like every time they go to a commercial break, they'd always leave you on a cliffhanger. Do you remember that? And you couldn't fast forward. It was, it was uh, really trying times. Or, you know, you could rent uh, this really this shiny circular disc, you know what I'm talking about, called a DVD. In fact, back then, Netflix actually would send you DVDs in the mail. Yes, kids, it was that bad. We had to wait on the mail, I know. Those were dark times. But the show 24 was a show about the day in the life of counterterrorism agent named Jack Bauer. Each episode was one hour with 24 episodes making one season. And man, a lot of wild stuff happened in that one day. Of course, Jack Bauer always ended up saving the world from total destruction, and somehow he always got it done in exactly 24 hours. That's the title of the show. Today, we're going to look at one day in the life of the most well-known person, the most important person to ever live, that person being, of course, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. A man who has dominated the last 2,000 years of world history. A man who there have been more books written about, more songs composed for, more paintings created of than any other person ever. A man who so far we've seen was born of a virgin, was called the Messiah by John the Baptist, was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him and God the Father spoke and called him the Son of God. A man who then withstood direct temptation from Satan himself. A man who then declared himself to be the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, the messianic king. All of that has already taken place in just the four first, first four chapters of Luke. We established that Luke wants us to see accurately who Jesus was and is, and then to decide for ourselves whether to accept him or reject him. And we said there's no greater decision than that. So let's continue walking through Luke's gospel account this morning. And one thing we need to note before we read our passage is that there are times in Luke's gospel when he jumps forward in the storyline. Sometimes he skips ahead days, sometimes longer. We have only one story from the first 30 years of Jesus' life. But in our passage today, Luke does the opposite. He slows down to give us one 24-hour day in the life of Christ. That slowing is significant. Luke wants us to see what it means that Jesus was ushering in the kingdom of God. And as a result, we get to witness a day with the king. So look with me at Luke chapter 4. Let's start in verses 31 to 37. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. 
and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Here's the first story from this 24-hour period day with Jesus. He began in the synagogue teaching the people on the Sabbath. As we've already seen, a major part of Jesus' ministry was his teaching. And as a popular up-and-coming rabbi, he had plenty opportunity to speak in synagogues in various places. It's while Jesus is teaching the crowd that twice they are amazed with his authority. The first time, verse 32, says they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Jesus taught in a way that was different from the other teaching of this time. He taught in a way that grabbed people's attention and spoke to their hearts. We are told it was because of his supreme speaking ability or his eloquence. No, it's rather because he was filled with the Spirit. When Jesus spoke, he spoke the word of God as God. And people recognized that authority. They were blown away by it. Second time we see the crowd amazed at his authority is when Jesus cast out the demon. That's pretty understandable to be amazed by that. This is something we'll see a lot in Jesus' ministry. Think back to when we looked at the temptation of Jesus by Satan. We talked about how Jesus came to defeat and deal with with the forces of evil. So this is a major part of the gospel accounts. Wherever Jesus goes, he faces opposition, not just from people, but from evil spiritual beings. And it's important for us to understand that demons are real. Okay, they're real. They're still present in the world today. Now, we live in a very different world culturally from first century Israel. We live in what they call a post-enlightenment time when pretty much everything, they, th- they say, can be explained by science or, or reason. We believe in what we can see and touch. And, and we have a lot to be grateful there for there, but that's not necessarily a bad thing in itself. But one of the negatives of, of living in the time we do is that we ignore spiritual realities, the things we can't see. And we ignore the very real spiritual realm around us. The Bible says there are spiritual beings created by God. Some who support God we commonly call angels, and those who oppose God we call demons. They are not equal to God. They are not outside of God's sovereignty, but they are real and they are active. The Bible says they're at war. And we're often caught in the middle of it without even knowing it. So, so listen to me, friend. You're not crazy for believing in spiritual warfare and in angels and demons. No, the, the crazy ones are the ones who walk around thinking there's nothing more to this material world than what we can see. Jesus demonstrated there are real spiritual enemies present who seek to harm people. A demon possession and demonic attack are real things. And Jesus has the authority and the power to cast them out. He does this repeatedly in his ministry, and we know one day he will return to destroy Satan and his demons completely and finally forever. It's fascinating that the demons are often the ones in the Gospels that identify Jesus correctly. Look again at verse 34. Demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Whereas people often struggled to identify Jesus, the demons knew exactly who he was. They knew he was the son of God, that he had the power to destroy them, and they trembled in fear. So when Jesus cast the demon out, he rebuked him. He told him to be quiet. And we'll see that again here in a few minutes. Well, why does Jesus tell demons to be quiet? 
It's interesting, Jesus does this with people too. He will often heal someone and tell them, hey, don't tell anybody. It's clear, Jesus has a specific timeline he's following to reveal himself to the world. He doesn't want too much known about him too quickly, but he has this plan he's following. And he isn't going to let the demons, even them, short-circuit that plan. So Jesus casts out the demon. Not only that, he protects the man. He's unharmed. And again, the people respond in all of his authority. Look at verse 36. They were all amazed. They said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Again, it's the word of Jesus. It has power and authority. And again, reports about him begin to spread around. Now, that in itself is quite a way to start a day. <laughs> Preach a killer sermon, cast out a demon right in the middle of it. Uh, that'd be pretty cool if you saw that today. But, but Jesus, he's not done. Look at what happens next. Look at chapter 4, verses 38 39. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Here's the second story of Jesus' 24-hour day. He left the synagogue, went to lunch at the local Mexican restaurant, uh, I think they must have skipped that part. But no, he went, he went to Simon's house, who we know was Peter, right? And because of this story, we know Peter was one of the disciples who was married. This is his mother-in-law, who's sick with a high fever. So Jesus steps in, he heals her, and immediately, it says immediately, she gets up and she begins to serve them. So just as Jesus demonstrated his authority over demons, he now demonstrates his authority over sickness, and this continues into the night. Look at the next story, Luke 4, 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Third story takes place at sunset. Because of Jesus' miracles, word spreads. And now all sorts of people are being brought to him for healing. And it's interesting to note that Jesus, he could have done a mass healing. He could have said, sorry guys, you know, I really got to get to bed. It's been a long day. I already dealt with one demon and preached a sermon. Let's make this quick. And he could have just waved his hand over the crowd and healed everyone all at once. What does he do? He doesn't do that. It says he laid his hands on every one of them. He took the time to see each person, to address their individual needs. That shows the heart and love of our Savior. Guys, he doesn't just love the all of you. He loves you. He loves you individually, and he longs to meet your needs. That's what he does. Again, he casts out many demons. Again, they confess the truth about him. They say, you are the Son of God. And again, Jesus silences them. And we don't know how long this went on into the night. doesn't say, but the idea is that Jesus spent a significant amount of time caring for people and meeting their needs. And that brings us to the next day, Luke chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God 
to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Here's the last story from this 24-hour day. It's now the next morning. And Jesus retreats, as he often does, for time alone with his father. But the people want more. They've seen the power of Jesus. They want him to stay. They try to convince him, stay with us. But notice what Jesus says. He says, "That's, that's not my purpose. Jesus wasn't called to go to one place and build up this kingdom, but he was called to take the kingdom of God from place to place to place so that all could have a day with the king. Now let's back up. And let's look at this 24-hour day in Capernaum in the context of Luke's gospel so far. Remember, Luke wrote so that we might have certainty concerning who Jesus is. And this day in Capernaum came right after Jesus' day in Nazareth. Both of those days started the same way with Jesus preaching in the synagogue and telling the people that the kingdom of God was here and that he was the king of this kingdom. But those two days ended radically different. Whereas the day in Capernaum, we saw that last week, ended with the people, or sorry, that was today, ended with the people begging Jesus to stay. The day in Nazareth, which we saw last week, ended with the people trying to throw him off a cliff. Very different responses. What was different? It wasn't Jesus. He wasn't any different. It was the people. The people in Nazareth rejected Jesus. They chose not to believe his message and not to submit to him as their king. But the people in Capernaum accepted Jesus' message. They recognized him as their king. And as a result, they got to experience firsthand what it means to live in the kingdom of God. We'll see that phrase a lot throughout the Gospels. The kingdom of God. It's not a physical place or a building. Rather, the kingdom is anywhere where God has rule and authority and where his way is lived out. The kingdom is a place where demons flee and people are restored. It's it's heaven coming down to earth. Jesus came to announce the arrival of God's kingdom and to usher it in as the king. And while many would reject it, some accepted it. They surrendered to Jesus and followed him. And we know our call today is to do the same. We have an opportunity to surrender to the king. And when we do, we become members of his kingdom. Paul said it like this in Colossians 1. He said, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's our hope, that we become members of God's kingdom here on earth and then for all eternity in heaven. But just like those in the first century, if you want to be in the kingdom, you must surrender to the king. So in the time we have left, let me give you three ways we surrender to King Jesus and become a part of his kingdom based on what we saw in our passage today. Here's the first, number one. Number one, first we must surrender to Christ's kingly authority. Authority. Think back with me to the first few hour, hours of Jesus' day in Capernaum. He's preaching in the synagogue. Twice the people notice his authority. And this tells us that to surrender to Jesus means to surrender to his authority over your life. Now, just saying those words, it's not, it's not real popular in today's culture. We live in a time in which authority has kind of gone out of style. 
Those in positions of authority are viewed with suspicion and distrust. We don't want people telling us what to do, what to believe, what to think. We value independence and freedom. But here's the truth that people miss. Everyone has an authority that guides their life. Everyone has a king, someone who determines the decisions they make and the way they live. Everyone bows before an occupied throne. The question we need to ask is, who sits on the throne of my life? Who sits on my throne? For some, their king is the almighty dollar. Money is their authority and determines their lives. Whatever can increase their wealth, they will do. Lying, cheating, neglecting family and responsibility, working themselves into the ground, money is their king. For some, their king is pleasure. Whatever feels right must be right. They chase the next buzz, the next high experience. And when we hear that, our minds think of, you know, things we know are sinful like drugs or sexual immorality. But that's not the only things that bring pleasure. Right? Binging the next show on Netflix, spending all day on the golf course or with another hobby, eating more than you should. Many things can bring pleasure, and those aren't bad things in and of themselves. But when your pleasure rules your heart and guides your life, pleasure has become your king. We could go on and mention other authorities that people bow to, like control or success or comfort or knowledge or family or work or lots of things. But at the end of the day, what we find is that whenever we make something else besides God our king, our real king, the real authority in our lives is ultimately ourselves, me. I'm the king of the castle. I sit on the throne of my life. I determine what is right. I determine what is wrong, what I do, what I don't do. I will love other people so long as it benefits me. I'll go to church as long as it does something for me. I'll be a good person as long as it makes me look good. And the sad reality is this is how most people live. They've lived their whole lives that way. They think it's normal. But this is not the way God designed us to live. Because this is what got Adam and Eve in trouble and messed everything up in the first place. This is what made the devil the devil. So step one in surrendering to Jesus as your king is getting off the throne. It's admitting that you are not a good authority over your life. That you don't know what's best for you. That if it's up to you, you will sin and you will hurt other people and you will run your life into the ground. And that's something we've all experienced, haven't we? Surrendering to Jesus, becoming a Christian, becoming his follower is about kicking yourself off the throne and making Jesus your king. He now becomes your authority. He now determines what is right, what is wrong, how you live, what you think, what you do, what you feel. He is in charge. And admittedly, that, that can be a scary thing at first. For many people, the scariest thing they could ever do is give up control. But that's exactly what following Jesus requires. However, once you give up, once you surrender, here's what you find. His authority is better. Christ's authority is much better. It's better, first off, because it's true. It's true. That's what the people found in Capernaum. They'd been listening to all these people teach for a long time, but they heard the words, heard the words of Jesus, and they said, man, something's different. 
this is truth. What Jesus says is ultimate truth. So when Jesus says that God designed sexuality to be between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, that's truth. When Jesus says that lust and hatred are adultery and murder in the heart, that's truth. Jesus' authority is better because it's true, and we find that truth in his word. Jesus' authority is also better because it's ultimate. And this is what we see with the demons. Make no mistake, demons, Satan, they have power. Peter says Satan's like a roaring lion looking to devour. But their power, their authority is not ultimate. Satan lives on a leash. The demons tremble at the name of Jesus. So, look, I know that thinking about demons can be scary, and and Hollywood takes full advantage of that with scary movies. But as Christians, we have no need to fear the devil and his minions. They have no power over those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' authority is better because it's ultimate. It's the authority above all others. Jesus has all power, can do all things, for nothing is impossible with him. That's why the smartest thing you can do is get off the throne. Don't just scoot over. All right, God will not share his reign, but get up and take off the crown. You're not a good king, and neither am I. And the sooner we understand that, the sooner God can work in our lives. To surrender to Jesus, we must first surrender to his authority. Here's the second way we surrender. Number two, we must surrender to Christ's kingly ability, his ability. Because Jesus has all authority, he has all ability. And we saw this when he healed the sick. Peter's mother-in-law is lifted up from her deathbed and she starts making lunch. People with all sorts of diseases come to Jesus and they go home, maybe the first time with a good night's sleep. So we may wonder, does Jesus still have the ability to, to heal today? I believe he does. The Bible says we can pray for healing. And sometimes God works miracles. And other times he uses sickness and disease for a greater purpose. But I believe the stories of Jesus healing people are not ultimately about his ability to heal today. But I believe they're about his ability to save today. Jesus' miracles demonstrated that he has the power to do anything. If he can open blind eyes and heal disease then he can save us from our sins. That's our greatest need, is to be forgiven of our sin and changed from the inside out. And Jesus proves that he alone can do that. As we said earlier, it's incredible that the demons are the ones who seem to know this truth the best. Even though they hate Jesus and oppose him, they can't deny who he is. They know his ability to destroy them. They know his ability to save. That's why they fear him. Jesus alone has the ability to save us. Have you surrendered to him in that way? It goes hand in hand with getting off the throne and giving Jesus the authority in your life. When you do that, you're admitting that you don't have the ability to save yourself. That you can't do it. You can't get rid of your sin on your own. You can't be good enough for heaven. You can't do enough good works to counteract the bad. And you're also admitting that nothing else can save you either. There's no other religion or belief system or ideology or practice or plan. In surrendering to Jesus, you're recognizing that he and he alone has the power and ability to save. And you're putting all your stock in him. 
It's kind of like going skydiving. Uh, let me tell you, that is one thing I will never do. If you ever see me online, picture me skydiving, someone had a gun to my head. Believe it. Yeah, I think if God wanted me to fly, he would have given me wings. I will not willingly, willingly jump out of a plane. And if I see you do it, I will judge you. Okay? I will. I will tell your insurance company. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I, I've, I've seen videos online of these, these, these crazy hoodlums where they, they jump out of a plane. And, and, you know, when people skydive for the first time, they're harnessed to a professional, all right? They don't just throw you out. They harness you to someone else who's a professional, and that professional is the one who controls the dive, and he pulls the parachute. He is the one who knows what he's doing, at least you hope. And as he goes, so go you. You're just along for the ride. You're literally strapped to him and have entrusted your well-being entirely to that person. That's why I ain't doing it. <laughs> I don't trust nobody like that except Jesus. And that's the point. Because that's actually a good picture of what it means to surrender to Jesus. <laughs> You're about to jump out of the plane with nothing to prevent you from going splat except him. You're attaching yourself and your eternity to him. You're placing your full trust in his ability to pull the chute and bring you safely to the ground. And while some might call that unwise, it's actually the smartest thing you could ever do. Because Jesus is the only one who can save. He's the only one that can do it. And he proved it by taking all of our sin on the cross on himself and then rising from the dead on the third day. That proved Jesus saves. Jesus is who he says he is and he has the ability to take away our sins. So when we surrender to King Jesus, we surrender to his kingly ability. Here's the third and last way. We must surrender. Number three, we surrender to Christ's kingly aim, his aim. In this passage, we see two results of surrendering to Jesus, two callings that come when you follow him. The first is with Peter's mother-in-law. The moment she's healed, what does she do? She immediately begins to serve. That's a great picture for us, isn't it? To be saved by Jesus is to become a servant of Jesus. And that makes total sense when you recognize him as your king. When someone becomes your king and he sits on the throne of your life, you swear allegiance to him. You live to serve him and accomplish his will rather than your own. So what might that look like in your life? What might it look like for you to serve Jesus rather than yourself? How would that look at your workplace or in your home, on your street, in your community, even here at church? How much of your day is spent serving yourself and your own wants or needs and how much is spent serving God by serving others? When we follow Jesus, we're called first to serve. We see the second calling in Jesus' own words. He tells Capernaum he can't stay because he's got to get the message to everyone else. That's his mission. That's what he does. He goes place to place and in the book of Acts, when he leaves, he passes that mission on to his disciples and then to us, to be saved by Jesus is to share about Jesus. The aim, the, the result, the purpose of our surrender is not to keep it to ourselves, but to take what we've been given, what we've found, and share it with others. So let me close by asking you, is Jesus your king? 
Does he rule over and determine your life, every part of it? Is he king over your time, over your finances? Is he king over your family, over your relationships? Is he king over how you work, how you treat others, how you neighbor? Is he king over your social media, what you watch, what you listen to? Does Jesus have your allegiance? That word allegiance is not a word we use very often. It means the loyalty or, or commitment we give to someone or something higher than us. Most common example we have in our culture today is when we pledge allegiance to the flag. We're, we're saying that we uh, submit to serve and be loyal to our country. But the idea of giving our allegiance to another person, again, that's not a positive idea in our culture today. It, it evokes images of duty and servitude. Like we're bound to this. But I was, I was struck recently by this example, uh, reading through the Lord of the Rings books. I'm finishing up the third book, finally that long trek. And in the, the third book, one of the hobbits, his, his name is Mary, he decides to pledge allegiance to this great king. And this king, he's big deal, rules over a mighty kingdom of men. He's strong, mighty, valiant. And, and here's this, this tiny little hobbit. Okay, And he decides of his own free will that he's going to pledge his allegiance to that king. He's going to give himself to the king. And I was struck by this, that, that for Mary, the hobbit, to give his allegiance to this huge big king, it wasn't a duty. It was a delight. He wanted to do this. For him, it was the honor of a lifetime to submit himself to this renowned king, to be a part of his kingdom, to be accepted by him, to give his life for him. That was the best thing ever. And the king, he wasn't ashamed of this little hobbit Mary. He had this huge army of men, but he gladly welcomes him into his kingdom. He lets him ride with him and sit with him. It's almost like this father-son relationship. And I thought, man, that's, that's what it's like to give Jesus your allegiance. It's not just a duty, it's a delight. It's not drudgery like some kind of forced wooden agreement. No, to give your life to Christ, to serve him, to live only for him, what an honor that is. What greater thing could you ever do? Because King Jesus is a, is a good king, he's a kind king, he's a loving king, he's a just king, and he's worthy of all honor and allegiance. That little town of Capernaum got 24 hours with King Jesus. Look at how it impacted their lives. Look at what it did. So what do you think will happen? What do you think it will be like when we're with him for all eternity? When you surrender to Jesus, you become a citizen of his kingdom now. You get the joy of serving him and living for him now. You get the blessings of the kingdom now. And one day you will experience all of it in all its fullness forever. So, is Jesus your king? If not, don't wait. Surrender to him today. Would you bow your head with me?